I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now as we take a trip to Australia to visit with Iggy Tan, the Managing Director of Altec Batteries Limited, trading as ATC on the ASX. Mr. Tan is a highly experienced mining and chemical executive with a number of significant achievements in commercial mining projects, such as capital raisings, funding, construction, startups, and operations. Mr. Tan has over 30 years of chemical and mining experience and has been an executive director of a number of ASX listed companies. Today I'm joining Iggy at the International Mining and Resources Conference in Sydney, Australia. Iggy, it is fantastic to see you here in Sydney. Thanks so much for coming out to meet me all the way from Perth. Yeah, welcome to Australia, Alice. I love this country. Yeah? It's so organized and there's a work ethic that I haven't seen in a long, long time. This is the uh, International Mining Conference here in Sydney, so a lot of mining companies here. So The organizers of this event, they ask me to speak from time to time, no matter where I'm at in the world, and I have to think of what to say yeah. every time I get in front of the microphone. So you were on a panel here? I was yesterday, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, what was the uh, topic? The topic was battery metals. Oh, right, okay. Exactly what we're going to talk about today, I right. think. And I've got to tell you, I have a real problem, Iggy, and I think we touched on this the last time you and I got together over a Zoom call, not in person like this. You're a very tall, man. I expected somebody a little shorter for, <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> we're, we're the same height. Uh, and I'm, Anyway, moving on. I have a Tesla, and it's one of these Model S plaids, and it was promised 390 miles of range. I think that's something around 500 kilometers, and I'm lucky if I get 150 to 200 miles to the plug-in, and I see these batteries as deteriorating over time. You know a lot about the technology. Why aren't they not working? What is Elon Musk going to do about it, in your opinion? Well, as you know, uh, a couple of years ago, Tesla, in their open day, announced uh, the increased use of silicon, metallurgical silicon, in lithium-ion batteries. So, as you know, Alice, in a lithium battery, there's the cathode, and then there's the anode. The anode is generally graphite and copper, and there's a lot of development in the cathode over the last decade, but not a lot of development on the negative part, which is the anode. And Elon Musk came out and said the future of their batteries will contain more silicon on the anode part. Now, just to give you a context of why the importance of silicon, silicon has 10 times the capacity to hold lithium than graphite. So for a layperson, there are 10 times more hooks that lithium can sit on when you charge and discharge the battery. So you can see by incorporating silicon, you can increase the density of the battery, which means your Tesla goes longer and faster. Why isn't that being done now? Well, silicon has two problems. So the question is, if silicon is such a great anode material, why isn't it incorporated in batteries today? Well, it has two major problems that the industry have been trying to solve. Firstly, silicon expands 300% in volume when you charge and discharge the battery. and it sort of delaminates on the anode side. So that's problem number one. The second problem is that it's got a very large first cycle loss. So when you first charge the battery, lithium goes across and 40% of the lithium doesn't come back. It gets incorporated Ever. on the surface and becomes inactive to the battery. So the battery industry calls it the first cycle loss. Graphite has got about 8%. So did you know that 8% of your lithium before it leaves in the factory is when you first charge it doesn't play any further part so the industry has been trying to resolve this first cycle loss. i noticed that there was a large amount of first cycle loss after the first couple of times that i charged my car yeah 
dramatic decrease in range. And you're saying that's what that is. Yeah. So essentially, those are the two problems with silicon. And the industry has been trying to resolve those two problems, the expansion and the first cycle loss. How does Tesla sell all these cars with that knowledge in hand to begin with? They are trying to expand the capacity of the batteries and the future is these metallurgical silicon particles. So nobody's doing it right so far? Well, they're trying to resolve that problem. Okay. So we've got technology that virtually cracks the silicon code. Alice, what we do is we coat each silicon particle with a fine layer of alumina two microns. So a micron is one thousand of a millimeter. What is alumina? Alumina is aluminum oxide. Okay. So if you can coat the particle with alumina, it resolves two problems. It keeps the expansion from creating problems. And secondly, it resolves the first cycle loss. It's like a pre-coating. It stops the lithium from sticking to it on the first charge, but it allows the lithium to go through it during the performance of the battery. So last year or the year before, we announced that we cracked the silicon code and we produce batteries that are 30% higher energy density because of this alumina coating. And we call this salumina anodes, right? Our product is salumina anodes. And this is very exciting technology. Wow. So you're saying that I won't experience that, or owners of new Teslas or EVs won't experience that severe first cycle loss. And also, you will get an increased energy density if we can incorporate silicon. So the technique we use is very simple. We don't try to make alumina first and try to use that powder to coat the silicon. We make it in situ, in the chemical plant. We buy metallurgical silicon. We coat it with an alumina liquid precursor. And then we calcine it and make alumina in situ. When you make alumina, you start with aluminum chloride. And then when you heat it up to 400 degrees, it becomes aluminum. So we create this two nanometer layer of alumina around the silicon. And that essentially cracks the silicon code. What's the durability over time? Well, we have part of the development is to incorporate these in batteries and then run these batteries over many, many cycles to see the performance of it. So we have run these batteries over many, many cycles and we consistently show that it's already at 30% higher energy density than the batteries that just have graphite. Is this proprietary technology or other people doing it? Yeah, our chief scientist, Dr. Jinwan Lu, developed the technology. We have patents on it and we're also commercializing it. So we we have plans to build a 10,000 ton per annum salumina anode plant in Germany, in Saxony, Germany, next to our Serenergy battery project. So essentially we buy silicon, we buy graphite, we coat it with our alumina coating, we put it together as a salumina anode material, and then we sell it to the battery makers to use that to then increase the density of their batteries. So you're not selling directly to the automotive groups, you're selling it to the battery makers. Well, yes. and you know a lot of the automotive group are now becoming battery makers a bit like Tesla they realize that essentially an EV is a battery on wheels so, so I've been avoiding the question but I'll ask it now are you having talks with these end users like Tesla well we have NDAs with some large automotives and they're waiting for commercial samples so at the moment our laboratory in Perth can only produce small samples 
So we have to build a pilot plan where, and we're in final commissioning of a, a pilot plan, about the $6 million pilot plan in Germany. And then we have the ability to produce commercial samples and then we can send it to some of our potential customers who will then go through a qualification process. The US is the other market. As you know, Ford, GM, Tesla are all building battery plants. In Europe, we're talking Ford, GM, Volvo, BMW, Mercedes, all those automakers over there. Absolutely, and also the grid storage market. So people that are building batteries for grid storage, which I talked about last time, right. grid storage batteries are essentially decoupling, resolving the intermittent problems of renewable energy. So when the sun's shining during the day, you're generating power, but how do you harness that power and shift that towards the nighttime? You need big batteries. So the world needs batteries going forward and everybody's looking at improving the performance of these batteries and bringing the cost down. So something like Solumina anodes will do that. You'll be proving this out in Europe and then perhaps you'll move into the U.S. as a secondary but large market at some point, right? Absolutely. And with the IRA Act, I'm sure that that will be a worthy destination for a second plant. I'm surprised you're not in California yet, but I guess that it's so restrictive there with regard to regulation. You need to prove this out in Europe first, don't you? You've got to start somewhere. Very exciting technology developed within the company. We own the IP and very excited to, in the next quarter or so, to release a definitive feasibility study. We then go to financing of the project. We're looking at grants, green bonds and equity. They exist uh, in Europe, don't they? Yeah, well, grants, as you know, is there's a lot of money in Europe looking for green projects like the IRA Act. We started the grant application, so very confident that we'll get the funding through grants and then bonds as well as equity. And then you become everybody's friend. It's not you against the world or one manufacturer over another. Everybody's going to want you. Exactly. So very exciting technology. This is really, really fascinating. I had no idea until this conversation that you were doing this. I mean, I looked at the website. I didn't quite get it. Hearing yeah. it broken down like you've explained to me just makes a lot of sense. It's very exciting. And it's almost the opposite of what we discussed last time, the sodium chloride body. Well, battery. we have actually a leg in both camps. So we have a leg in the lithium-ion battery camp. The lithium-ion battery is not going to go away. It's a great battery. It's the battery of the future. You took but the words out of my mouth because <laughs> there's there's some talk now about it going away, but in, in your opinion, that's just not ever going to happen. Well, the lithium battery was developed in 1950s by Mitsubishi, and it's taken that long to be commercialized in such a grand scale. So it's never going away. And, you know, every week you read a report about an alternative battery or some sort, but it's early development. It takes a long time to get to market and commercialize. Are these new silica-based batteries going to be retrofitted into, let's say, my Tesla when it becomes you know, five years old by the time your technology hits the market? Yeah, we call it drop-in technology. Ooh. You don't have to change the battery plant. You don't have to modify it. Basically, you would buy graphite, you would put it into your tanks and you add binders, and then you would coat the graphite onto copper plates. There's no change. You would just buy our material, which has 10% silicon. That's it. There's another 10% silicon in the graphite. But what it does, it boosts that graphite by nearly 30% in energy capacity. We're at one of the biggest mining conferences in the world right now. Not the biggest one, but one of the biggest. And a lot of these companies in the space have a problem with, with permitting, with legislation, with all these things that drag a project out 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. None of that exists here, I take it. None of that exists here, I take it. Well, Australia is a country that develops projects quickly. In my previous 
background with lithium. We developed a mining project and a concentrator from Maiden Resource, building a concentrator and first product out in three years, including permitting. Now, that's probably unheard of in the North American market. Completely. But Australians are good at developing mining projects. Iggy, it's been a pleasure to sit down and chat with you in person and learn about this technology. I can't wait until it's been proven out in the pilot plant and I get to retrofit my car with it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks for having me, Alice. I've been speaking with Iggy Tan, Managing Director of Altec Batteries Limited, trading on the ASX as ATC. Visit the company's website, altecgroup.com. Questions, comments? Head to our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. If you're a principal, management, board member, or an investor in a publicly traded company needing exposure to a domestic and global audience of retail investors, high net worth individuals, and family offices, reach out to me. Let's chat and perhaps get your company on this program as a sponsor. Sponsor the Ellis Martin Report. Call me at 310-430-1388 or email me at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports with an S at gmail.com. You have a fiduciary duty to your shareholder base to showcase your company to potential investors. Call me, 310-430-1388. We have a potential global audience for your story of over 3 million subscribers. Find us at ellismartinreport.com and call me at 310-430-1388. That's 310-430-1388. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment of the Ellis Martin Report, I speak with Dr. Paul Wessels, the president and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Western Copper and Gold Corporation is developing the Casino Project, Canada's premier copper gold mine in the Yukon Territory, and one of the most economic greenfield copper gold mining projects in the world. The Casino Project hosts approximately 7.6 billion pounds of copper, as well as 14.5 million ounces of gold, one of the largest projects of its kind, again, held by a junior mining company in the world. Paul, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thanks so much for joining me today. Alice, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. What do you think about the market right now? I ask everybody this, but I'd be curious to see what your actual perception of it is. Where are we with copper and gold at the exact same time? It's my contention that they'll move together. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was about to say, I don't know if they'll move together, but I think they might move together for different reasons. It's just more of a happenstance. You've probably been asking people that and it's been, well, you know, we, we must be close to the bottom. I feel like actually this is the week things turn. We started to see our share price begin to tick up. We started to see you saw gold prices go from low 1800s and it was like, oh my God, is it going to go below 1800? And now we're comfortably above 1900. I haven't looked at it today, but yesterday it was sort of 1940. Copper, all the same things move copper. Uh, news out of China, news about electrification. There's some good news out of China. There's still headwinds in China with the housing market, but GDP growth keeps moving forward. Imports still look very, very high for China. And that's beginning to sort of weigh in on the copper price in a positive way. And you're seeing copper price move with that. And and our share price, which has been beaten up like everybody else this week, actually sort of is ticking up a little bit. So yeah, I'm hoping that this, this isn't what they call the infamous dead cat bounce, that this is a positive sign of things to come. And this is the time of the year when this happens, right? I mean, things always get beaten up in October 
And it's end of October, beginning of November, when you begin to see a bit of a rebound. And then, so this is what I think we're seeing now. So what we're seeing is, in your words, uh, a typical rebound. You're up about 3% today. And today, by the way, is October 18th, 2023. And this day, otherwise, is a terrible market. The NASDAQ's down. Dow Jones is down significantly. But we're seeing an uptick specifically with Western copper and gold. I mean, I haven't looked at the gold equities, but things aren't moving and shooting up yet. But there's sort of a little unsettled that things are up and things are down. But that's usually the mark of some big move to come one way or another. And I'm going to suggest that it's up. I mean, obviously, gold is up in, in terms of the commodity for uh, you know geopolitical reasons. And it always starts with gold. For whatever reason, mining stock, and we've got a lot of gold, as you know, 21 million ounces of gold in, in our deposits. So we move a bit with the gold stocks as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to say you do have a huge amount of gold in the ground over there in the Yukon. And I've been out there and by God, the whole landscape glistens with gold. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know what I mean. And Rio Tinto is on site. They're checking everything out every day they're there, I think. Is that right? When the first drilling program we did in 2021, they were there for about a week this year. They had their geologists at site because it was a pretty small exploration program that we did this year. Mitsubishi was there pretty much the whole time, though. They actually had quite a few. They had about four of their geologists up there. Rio sent their geologists up for a week in September. So it's great. I mean, let's be honest, having Rio Tinto and Mitsubishi and that sort of horsepower on the geology side, on the metallurgy side, on the project execution side, I mean, they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes on the technical front that, I mean, I'm going to be blunt. I don't have to pay for and the shareholders of the company get to benefit from. Well, certainly nobody else is telling me that story right now. And I've talked to many, many companies. I'm certainly not disparaging any of the other sponsors on this program at all. I'm just saying that you're an example of how it should go ultimately for every company in the business. And I understand, I heard it through the grapevine, that you had some meetings with Mitsubishi and Rio Tinto in London just recently this month. I was there for LME week and LME week happens every year in October. And it's interesting to be there. I went for the first time last year and met with Mitsubishi and Rio. And I went this year and met with Mitsubishi and Rio. And everybody's in town. It's mostly about trading though. So I mean, it's not like I wander around and recognize a lot of people, which is usually the case for a mining sort of event, but it's more people on the concentrate trading and bullion trading, et cetera, et cetera. It is a time when everyone is in town. And so people, they come to to town and it's senior, most importantly, it's senior people. So, you know, we did have a chance to meet with senior people in Mitsubishi and then the senior group at Rio and, you know, very positive conversations, certainly strong commitment to the project moving forward. Can you give me any specifics about what you were talking about? No? Okay. <laughs> I'm a shareholder. <laughs> I have a right to know. <laughs> so what's the plan going forward for the next year? What else do you have to do to show Mitsubishi and Rio Tinto that you're available? The focus that we have as a company company, specifically on the casino project. We're also always looking at other assets and other opportunities, but, you know, specifically on advancing the project, which, you know, again, this is, we now have a joint technical and sustainability committee, which both Rio and Shibishi sit on. That's a very active committee. I mean, now we're meeting on a monthly basis, if not sometimes every, every couple of weeks, obviously permitting and moving the permitting forward is, is a key part. Lots of work on power. I mean, we probably talked about this the last time we got together. I mean, this is, it's a really exciting development. It's a real game changer in terms of this project is the idea of, of getting grid power onto the project. And, and so the idea here is to connect the Yukon grid to the British Columbia grid 
And that would thereby connect us to, you know, essentially the entire West Coast of North America in terms of, of power. And that brings in cheaper power. It brings in green power. We're now talking very green copper out of this. This is increasingly important to everyone. I'll be honest, and ourselves, Rio, Mitsubishi, shareholders. It actually is a great win-win-win situation here because, you know, the Yukon is running out of power. They're looking for enough justification to push this grid connect and, you know, our project along with, you know, some of the other projects earlier stage along with the needs right now of the Yukon, which is running out of power. It all comes together quite nicely. So that's going to be a big push here next year as well. There will be a resolution. The Yukon government is all in. They're absolutely committed to this. The feds and British Columbia, those conversations have been had and they're in. The First Nations, I think, are that's the stage where things are at right now. I mean, the governments are talking to the First Nations and making sure they understand the plan in, in terms of moving this forward. Hopefully, we get to something concrete and announceable on this and this is really what I'm pushing for because right now it's just conversations and, you know, like I said, just make getting everyone aligned. But then the next stage is that this all becomes public and we start to do studies and we start to do alignment and, and putting things together like that. So, you know, I talked to the BC government yesterday. I'm going to Ottawa in three weeks. It's exciting. It's a game changer. It is going to require these three levels of government all to come together. And you're lobbying on all those levels, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And, you know, actually, I mean, one thing I can share, you know, one of the things that we did talk about when we we were talking to Rio is is like, hey, you know, love, <laughs> love to have your much larger uh, team putting their shoulder behind that. And they said, you know, absolutely. You know, that was a big positive as well. So they wouldn't necessarily jump unless you ask them to do it. You got to ask, right? So. Well, good on you. Good on you. So is that power from BC? Is that all hydro? How's that generated? Yeah, British Columbia is, I mean, I, it is, I, I don't know if it's 100%, but it's like 99.5% hydro. It's pretty much all hydro. I was going to say, I think there's a little bit of solar somewhere and and maybe there's a bit of wind actually. You know, think of all the travels I've done around British Columbia, there's a bit of wind, but most of it's hydropower. So it's 100% green in your opinion. It's 100% green, yeah. That is fantastic. I think the only other part of North America that may be like that is Quebec, right? Yeah. And for, for much the same reasons, they've just got this great hydro potential that they've tapped again and again. So, and you know, it's sort of interesting, you know, talking to the Rio guys. So Rio has an aluminum smelter in British Columbia. And associated with that aluminum smelter is their own hydroelectric dam. So, I mean, if you connected the grids, you could, Rio remains involved. They could, theoretically, I could be buying power for the casino project from Rio Tinto. I don't even know how to wrap my head around that, except for it's most likely good for shareholders. Did I hear you earlier in this interview say that you were looking at acquisitions? Did you say that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're always looking for opportunities. We've got a new board. We've got a couple of board members that are real M&A guys from way back. And so they're always looking for opportunities. And like right now, there's some interesting opportunities out there. Everybody's beaten up and I feel like we're a little less beaten up than some other people. And we've looked at probably a dozen opportunities this year. I mean, obviously I haven't pulled the trigger on any of them. Part of the reason there is that we've got a big program here on moving the permitting forward, but there's some interesting exploration opportunities that we could add in as one avenue that we're looking at. We're looking at a couple of different 
avenues. In the Yukon or anywhere in North America, good opportunities are good opportunities. We're trying not to limit ourselves too much. But Paul, I know that copper has been designated, at least in Canada, as a critical mineral. How has that changed you and, let's say, your marketing strategy, your pitch when you're speaking to investors around the world? What does that mean for the company? Copper also recently was added to the list in, in the United States as well. That's for another call why I think that copper is actually probably the most important critical mineral out there. I mean, it doesn't have that fancy name. Everybody knows what copper is. It's not like half tonium or something like that, but it is probably the one that has most people worried, but it's moving at the federal government level and in both Canada and the US. We're actually going to be this week on a, a forum in, in New York City. There's just a, a small list that, and this is being, being run by Natural Resources Canada. We're going to be down in New York specifically to reach out to investors and to specific entities within the United States with, with a number of other other sort of critical minerals projects in Canada. So it's becoming a big part of the dialogue um, in, in both in Canada and the US. I mean, you see it again and again in the news. And right now with the copper and actually the molybdenum that we have in the deposit, we're actually the largest critical minerals project in Canada. And that gets attention, gets attention to Canada, gets attention to the US, you know, certainly helps move everything forward. I think that's a catchphrase. I think that's a slug line for this particular interview, the largest critical minerals asset in Canada. If you look at our new corporate presentation, it's right on the cover. So yeah, it's it's an important part of key things that we're going to need here to address the electrification and the energy transition as we move forward. And so... Well, Paul, thank you so much for the conversation today. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to a, an update in the very near future. Let's not let it be too long. All right. Sounds good. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Alice, and I look forward to our next conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Wessels, the president and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation. Trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Go to the company's website, westerncoppercorp.com. I'm Alice Martin, and I'm an investor with Western Copper and Gold Corporation. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. If you're a principal, management, board member, or an investor in a publicly traded company needing exposure to a domestic and global audience of retail investors, high net worth individuals, and family offices, reach out to me. Let's chat and perhaps get your company on this program as a sponsor. Sponsor the Ellis Martin Report. Call me at 310-430-1388 or email me at martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports with an S at gmail.com. You have a fiduciary duty to your shareholder base to showcase your company to potential investors. Call me, 310-430-1388. We have a potential global audience for your story of over 3 million subscribers. Find us at ellismartinreport.com and call me at 310-430-1388. That's 310-430-1388. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp., a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market 
under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Santo Tomas hosts a multi-billion pound copper resource defined by historical drilling and currently being confirmed by ongoing exploration drilling by Oroco. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation and Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances and the year ahead is rich with catalysts such as a formal resource definition and economic evaluation, each of which carries the possibility of a company valuation re-rating. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs as a result of dramatic shifts in metals importance to industrial and consumer markets. Hey, Adam, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Good morning, Ella. Good to see your face on this rainy gray day in October in Vancouver. Just before I threw the record switch, you were talking about the connection that you really have with your shareholders, your audience and our audience. Feel free to elaborate on that. Correct. Yeah. Oroco has an unusually close relationship with investors. We've raised all of our money, all of the capital, 60 million Canadian that we've raised in the last three years has come directly from investors to us with a relationship directly with us. We've done entirely non-brokered financings. So we have the advantage of direct communication and direct relationships with our investors. And that served the company very well. It's allowed it to raise money in difficult markets and it will continue to do so. So it's no secret right now, markets are very bad. Capital for junior explorers is limited and drying up. But I think the advantage that Oroco has, we have a unique group of shareholders. We have direct connection with them and we have a relationship with them. We educated people on the copper market, junior mining and the development stages of a company like ours. And so we have a great many people who understand what we're doing and appreciate the milestone we achieved this week with the announcement of a preliminary economic assessment for Santa Tomas, the Santa Tomas Copper Project in Sinaloa, Mexico. We announced a $2.3 billion pre-tax NPV, life of mine, 20-year life of mine with production at the current price at 385 copper, it's a little higher than current price, but at 385 copper, Santa Tomas will produce $20.55 billion of revenue over two decades, a billion dollars a year with C1 cash cost of production of $1.66 versus the current 360 copper price. So very good margins, even today at what is considered somewhat depressed copper prices and certainly terrific margins as we see the forecast step change in copper prices take place. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting out over the next month and speaking to our shareholders, explaining to them the significance of this PA and the figures contained in it. Well, certainly what you do, as long as I've known you, is you get out and you tell a story and you do it very well and you're very passionate about the company. You always have been as long as I've known you, which is, dates back to 2006, I believe, 17 years ago. And, you know, if you like the stock when you were over $2, and a lot of people did, a lot of people like the stock who definitely are going to like it now where it's at, what is it, Adam? Like 65, 66 cents. Market cap is just under 150 million Canadian. 65 cents. That's Canadian, right? The U.S. is a little bit, probably around 45, 50, so in that area, right? Yeah, high 40s. Yeah. So if you liked it then, a couple of years ago, when it was over $2, why wouldn't you consider it now? We're not telling you to buy the stock. Adam can't do it. I can't do it. We're both heavily biased. You're a sponsor of this program, which means you've paid for the exposure. On the other hand, Cantor Fitzgerald is recommending a buy. They can do that. 
Canada Fitzgerald and a boutique firm out of Toronto, Holdco Markets, both followed our news release of the preliminary economic assessment results with their own research. Both of them had initiated coverage prior to that with a target price. And based on our news this week, they increased their target share price. So yeah, if you liked it at any price in the past, higher than it is today, that was based on an understanding that the drill program and ultimately an economic assessment would recreate the historical work and go beyond it and create the kind of net asset value that we just announced earlier this week. So we've hit our marks. We've executed the drill program. We've executed the engineering. The economic assessment came in with numbers largely aligned with what was expected. 20 billion of revenue plus 9 billion of free cash flow life of mind. Very modest upfront capex of 1.35 billion. So we've shown this project has very low capital intensity. As Cantor pointed out, in a world where copper mines generally cost $30,000 of capex per ton of producible copper per year, we're coming in at just a little over half of that. Big copper mines generally cost two, three, four, five plus billion to put into production. We've got 1.35 of upfront capital. So we've demonstrated this to be a project which is well-situated. There's going to be CapEx and OpEx advantages because of its location in the middle of all the infrastructure needed for a project like this. Mineralization outcrops. The strip ratio, the waste to ore ratio is 1.16 to 1, which is relatively low. We demonstrated in this PA that this is the project that, that has advantages because of its location vis-a-vis -vis infrastructure, because of the way the ore bodies sit in a ridge, in an elevated ridge. And the numbers, to use a, a tech industry term, with this NAV, with this present value of future cash flows, this is a unicorn. It's a unicorn in terms of its NAV, if not market cap. And that's the other thing that Cantor Fitzgerald pointed out was the junior miners right now are generally those with studies like this, those relatively few projects advanced like this, are trading well below their NAV. And Oroco is trading at a greater discount even than its peers. So if you believe that in the future, as copper prices start to rise, as the investment community starts to focus on copper again, these assets will rise to some price that represents a higher percentage of NAV or even rise to NAV, then there's an opportunity here. We're trading at far below 10% NAV. Cantor Fitzgerald and others believe that these types of assets get bought at 0.6, 0.5 of NAV. So there's a great increase there. The other thing I'll point out about the study and about the NAV and the NPV and the future cash flow, et cetera, is this is the result of a first phase of exploration. We did 49,000 meters of drilling, which is an impressive amount, but it's by no means complete when you're talking about an ore body mineralization as extensive as we have at Santa Tomas. So we completed a phase one exploration program in order to meet minimum thresholds to come up with the kind of numbers that could be put into a mine plant. Phase two is going to take that exploration and take it closer to completion. In our news release, we listed 11 items which we'll be working on to improve the opportunity at Santa Tomas. And some of those have the potential to dramatically improve the numbers still. So this PEA is not exhaustive of the potential of Santa Tomas. Uh, it was simply a study based on a minimum threshold of drilling. So there's still lots on the table. We've outlined those things that we'll be focusing on to improve this project in the news release. When the full PEA study is released, companies have 45 days from the announcement of the key findings to publish those studies. There will be a lot of detail in there as to the future exploration program and how to move forward and how to advance and improve this project. How are you going to pay for phase two? I think that's a fair question. Well, I think earlier on, we touched on that. Obviously, the company will be needing to raise to raise capital. We've got with this study baseline value with which to attract additional investors. And we have got a very good database and contact list of investors, some of whom own stocks, some of whom are shareholders, and some of whom are not yet shareholders, some of whom may never be shareholders, but some of whom are not yet. Uh, there's a great many 
sophisticated investors in the commodity sector who simply can't invest until certain milestones are achieved, whether it's the announcement of a mineral resource estimate or preliminary economic assessment or further economic studies. As you rise up the food chain and you get bigger and more conservative investors, they bring more and more money. And a PEA is one of those studies that's a threshold for a great many of them and allows them to invest in a company like us. So we will be seeking equity raise from, I think, from that group and those people who recognize the value of the study and the numbers contained in it. We've got a pretty good market cap right now, as I mentioned, 150 million Canadian. The amount of drilling and exploration and engineering work that we still have to do represents a lot less than has already been done. So we're on the downslope here. We know we have to raise significantly less than has already been raised in this company. So I think dilution will be fairly limited. Well, that's fair. And those are great answers. Is it too early to entertain or explain the strategy about why you will or why you won't perhaps attract major or mid-tier JV partners to help you along? Someone like Rio Tinto, for instance. That's a terrific question, Ellis. And at this point in the development of a prospect like Santa Tomas, you would expect business development departments of majors who are looking for copper assets, who are desperately looking for copper assets. The words copper and emergency are being put together by a lot of those companies and by a lot of analysts. So we know the majors are serious. We know that they've started to engage in mergers and acquisitions to consolidate the copper sector and buy assets. To date, they have not been buying greenfield assets like this. They've been buying existing producers or assets, like in the case of BHP's acquisition of Oz Minerals, assets that have potential synergies with assets they already own. The acquisition of greenfield projects, projects that require additional work and permitting and construction and where cash flow is still several years away, has been somewhat slow. But As the chairman of Rio Tinto, Dominic Barton, recently put it, they're desperately seeking new copper assets, but shuffling of assets, existing assets between majors is not going to generate any new copper production and the world desperately needs new copper production. And so they will be looking at the acquisition of the types of assets that Santa Tomas represents, which will produce additional copper, new copper, these sources of new copper production. We know that the majors have not been doing it to date. We know that they've been engaging in a lot of acquisitions and M&A in the copper sector. And we're all wondering at what point, what is the catalyst that's going to cause them to come and buy assets like Oroco and the other half dozen, eight, 10 similarly sized advanced assets in the world? One of the things that may drive acquisition of greenfield assets would be higher copper prices. I can understand why the majors might be cautious right now. Talk of a recession. There's a slowdown in China. Started a couple of years ago, a few years ago with COVID slowing things down. So there's lots of reasons to be cautious with shareholders' money if you're a major right now. But there's also a very well understood, very widely broadcast coming deficits in copper. We are going to start to use more copper, which has been a trend since 150 years ago. The world has been using more copper every year, every decade. But the rate of of copper usage is going to increase above historical rates because of decarbonization, because of electrification. That's one of the most widely understood narratives in the commodity space right now. Except for a few handful of big mines being put into production over the next two years, which may leave the market in balance, even a slight surplus, it is widely understood that after that, copper usage and new copper mines are going to start to diverge and we're going to see deficits. So I think it it may take higher copper prices. It may take some of the things that are currently worrying economic analysts right now to turn around, but they will turn around and we will get back to a narrative of growth. Copper prices will respond. And that I think is is potentially one of the catalysts for M&A in the sector that, that Oroco is in. I think the price of copper is a really strong place right now. It's it's not too far away from $4. And it's just the equities that are really, really suppressed and depressed, as many equities are right now. And this is the time that the smartest investors should pick a, a basket of companies right now, especially in the copper space, because even though China may be pulling back a little bit with regard to factory production and all of that, the electrification of the world does not stop. It does 
not stop in North America. In fact, it's mandated. It's a critical mineral in Canada and the U.S. now. That's copper. We need it in everything. The fact of the matter is, is that gold is upticking along with oil right now. And usually copper and gold don't move together, but I think they're going to move together now for reasons that we can't fully explain. I would agree with that. I think the copper narrative is well understood. We're at a, a tipping point in terms of a number of technologies that are copper intensive. We know what's coming in terms of copper demand. And interestingly, we're also at a point where new copper resources, we stopped really developing and finding new copper resources a decade ago, over a decade ago. The rate of discovery of new copper resources has fallen off a cliff and not because it's not being looked for. Exploration budgets are, are quite high, but we have done a very thorough job over the last 40 years of finding copper. So part of the copper deficits upcoming have to do with increased demand and part of it has to do with decline in production and aging large copper mines, which, which are declining in grade and quality and costs are increasing. So we understand what's happening. And I think you're right. Investors should be able to put two and two and two together and understand that forces that are not going to be in play long term are keeping copper prices relatively low. I'll say because 360 is not a bad price, but the writing's on the wall. Copper usage in China is actually holding steady or rising. Whatever is not being used in the property sector is, is being put to use and been consumed by the energy and renewable and decarbonization sector in China. So I recently saw a graph that showed a drop off in copper usage in the housing sector and construction sector, almost completely taken up by increasing copper usage in the electrification sector. So we know what's coming. Big assets like Santa Damas provide investors a ton of leverage. And I think the, the Ganter report explains exactly how that is. You mentioned Rio Tinto, big copper player. Tech is a big copper player. BHP is a big copper player. So there's many ways to play the copper sector. And right now, what we're seeing is value of junior companies with big assets like Centers of Mass. Those are probably the most beat up. So those offer the most leverage to copper. So I encourage people to study copper. Look at the recent article in the New York Times that talked about the electrification of U.S. industry and how it's coming faster than people realize. Understand that it's legislated. Decarbonization electrification is legislated in all big economies. In the U.S., you've got the Inflation Reduction Act, you've got the Green Deal in Europe, and of course, China has five-year plans that see it adding renewable energy and copper-intensive technologies at a rate faster than anybody else in the world. That China adds more renewable energy capacity and generating capacity annually than the rest of the world combined. So the world's big economy is all lined up to do that. Copper usage in India ticked up 30% last year. So there's a sleeping giant. There's over a billion people that are going to start where wealth is being generated, standard of living is increasing, and they're entering a very, very copper-intensive phase of economic development like China did 20 years ago. And we saw what that did for copper prices. So India is now awakening and its copper usage is rising at well above the world's average. Adam, it's always great to catch up with you. If we didn't have these chats, I wouldn't get to see or talk with you, it seems. So I'm grateful for that. I encourage everybody to take a look at Oroco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. under the symbol ORRCF. Thanks so much for joining me today, Adam. Appreciate it, Ellis. Always a pleasure to talk and we will be in the same room one day soon, I hope. I'll see you soon. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. 
I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Thomas Abraham James, President, CEO, and co-founder of Pulsar Helium. Pulsar Helium is a publicly traded company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PLSR. Pulsar's portfolio consists of the Topaz Helium Project in Minnesota and the Two New Helium Project in Greenland. Pulsar is the first mover in both locations with primary helium occurrences not associated with the production of hydrocarbons identified at each. Thomas, a geologist by trade, studied geology and earth sciences at the Australian National University. He's a fellow of the Australasian Institute of Mining and Metallurgy, of the Geological Society of London, and the Society of Economic Geologists. He's a former managing director of Helium One Global and founder former CEO of Longland Resources. Tom, welcome to the program. It's fantastic to visit with you today. Yeah, a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me, Alice. You're new to our audience, so if you don't mind, give us a broad overview of Pulsar Helium. Certainly. So the name suggests a dedicated helium company, an explorer and developer of primary helium. The word primary is quite important because it's where helium is the primary economic driver for the project. Most helium in the world is a byproduct of hydrocarbon production. So more than 95%, in fact. But for us, we focus on projects that are not associated with hydrocarbons and therefore whether the helium is higher concentration and also where you're exposed to the, the full value of the helium price. As a company, we're, we're public. We're listed in Canada on the TSXV and we've got projects in the USA, in Minnesota and in the nation of Greenland. Not too many people know that Greenland is actually a mining country, but I met one of their mining ministers in London a few years ago and they're quite interested in exploiting the resources that they have there. They really are. They see it as an opportunity for diversification of their economy, that's for sure. And then also from a new exploration standpoint, and I'm a geologist by background, but I won't bore the audience with the geology too much, but really Greenland has the potential more or less for every commodity that's out there. I personally have worked in Greenland for a number of years, and the project that we have on the East Coast is something that we developed in-house with a concept, and we proved that in 2021 and were granted the first ever helium exploration license in Greenland. So great support from the government, definitely. So where are your end users with regard to Greenland? Is it both Europe and North America? I would say that it's mostly uh, going to be Europe, potential production there. The European Commission recently put helium on the critical raw material list earlier this year. And with that comes prioritizing of uh, projects for helium. And then also where offtake agreements are more or less arranged by the European Commission as well. So I think that the Greenland is destined to end up in Europe. Excellent. You certainly have a large market over there. I was recently visiting with a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Sistat, who is the managing director of Better in Our Backyard, and he's based in Duluth, Minnesota, very, very close to your Topaz project. Yeah, it's, it's a small world, isn't it? Knowing Ryan there, so it's wonderful. But you'd so say you don't just hear about the companies from me, but also from Ryan as well. So we are just down the road from Duluth, a city I really enjoy visiting. It's, it's uh, that rich mining history there, just uh, with all of the, the large taconite iron ore mines there, the infrastructure that comes with it. So we've got a flagship project is about two hours drive north of Duluth. The port has been brilliant from the local community. I think if anything, it's, it's quite the curiosity having a helium project in an area which is known for iron ore and also for nickel and copper. So something that I think has taken the local community by surprise, but uh, in a pleasant way. What are the environmental impacts of something such as helium compared to, let's say, iron ore mining or anything else for that matter? I think the biggest difference is the footprint. So for helium being a, a gas, 
it's not something that uh, you're going to be digging a, a big hole, let's say. So there's not going to be any visual pollution. Uh, that'd be the first thing. With our project, it's extremely high grade as well. So 10.5% helium. So the amount of gas that you need to process in order to have a final product is less because of that high grade. So was it the old saying, grade is king. Certainly the case with helium as well. So you could have a couple of wells, a couple of uh, boreholes there, and they would then feed into a, a processing facility and for helium, it's much smaller, say, than a natural gas plant. Uh, if anything, it'd be a fraction of the size because you're not dealing with the volumes and also you're not dealing with the volatility either. Also in that location, most of the power is coming from hydro. So that's something that we're looking to access and not being associated with hydrocarbon production. We've got a real opportunity here to slightly decarbonize a commodity, which is not something that many in the resource industry could say. Well, let's talk about the medical uses for helium. You're not terribly far from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Definitely right. So it's, uh, no, there's been uh, actually quite a lot. The National Hospital Association, the USA in particular, has been quite vocal with uh, helium as the Federal Reserve, which is the USA's strategic deposit of helium and keeping that for the medical industry. So its major use is in MRI scanners. In order for the magnet to superconduct, it's bathed in liquid helium and uh, needs quite constant topping up, replenishing as well. So that's the major one. And then also used in some breathing gases as well in the medical industry. You're a new company. I think it became public in August of this year. Is that correct? August the 15th. Is it too early to talk about potential offtake agreements? Well, look, you know, we only listed in August 15th. However, in the background, as a private company, we have existed for a few years. So in 2019, is it too early for offtakes? Well, it's probably never too early to at least have the discussion. In Minnesota, as you allude to there, there are significant end users of helium uh, in semiconductor manufacturing, also helium distributing companies, then of course the medical as well. So we've introduced ourselves to most of these groups. I think that they're very pleasantly surprised that there is a, a project in Minnesota. So I don't think that once we get to the, the right point to then go into start to tail off take, I think that certainly with the helium shortage out there and it's persisted now for about a decade, the appetite for product is strong. You've just expanded your land package a bit. Tom, are there any idea of the size of the reserves that may be there 200 kilometers outside of Duluth? We'll have an answer for that in the fairly near future. The project it has been drilled, and that's where the 10.5% helium came out. So what we're doing in December is re-drilling effectively. So we're doing what's called an appraisal well. So drilling within 30 feet of the discovery, we'll be putting down a second well zone. That will have the additional testing equipment there. Apologies for my dog barking in the background. <laughs> and that will give us a, an indication of the size of the reservoir. On top of that, we've just completed a, a seismic survey as well. That data will tie in nicely with the result of the drilling to better constrain the reservoir. But we think that we're onto something which is not just an isolated occur just surrounding the drill hole. We think it's something much larger, which is why that additional mineral rights is important. Minnesota is not known for oil and gas at all. In fact, if you read the playbook, it basically says don't go there. But the helium seems to be quite different. So looking, trawling through all the drill records, what we found is that there's actually been quite a few gas show countered when they were drilling for something else. And that gas has been non-combustible and not analyzed for helium. There is one other hole that has been analyzed for helium, and that's located roughly about 100 miles off to the south. And that came back with 2% helium, which is still incredibly high grade. So anything that's above 0.3% helium is deemed to be of economic interest. 
So to have 10.5% and then 100 miles away, 2%, we think that we're looking at very much a regional play here, which is why we were very happy with that announcement of additional mineral rights. It's not a one-trick pony. Well, a regional play is certainly of interest to potential and current shareholders. And on that note, let's chat about the share structure of the company. It looks pretty good to me. It's tight, that's for sure. So we have about 74 million shares on issue. A lot of those are in escrow. Management, myself and other directors and senior managers, we own 48% of the company. I guess to reinforce to the market our belief in what we've got here is that our shares are locked up quite an extended period. So it's minimum 18 months and then every six months thereafter, 20% release. So, you know, our shares are not out of lockup for ultimately for three years. It's an independent registry. So the people that we have in this moment in time do not have a vested interest in the helium product itself. They are financial investors. And then also for us, and you, you may tell from my accent, it's, it's not terribly Minnesotan or Canadian. So a lot of our investor base is from abroad, from the UK and Australia. So it's all about now creating awareness in North America. And I'm certainly glad to be able to help you do that. Tom, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. I look forward to more conversations down the road. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Likewise. Thank you very much for your time. I've been speaking with Thomas Abraham James, President, CEO, and Co-Founder of Pulsar Helium. Pulsar Helium trades on the TSX Venture Exchange as PLSR. Find the company at PulsarHelium.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to EllisMartinReport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. 